0: you remain standing and turn in your copy of God's Word this morning to Mark chapter 6. Mark chapter 6 as we continue our consideration of the Gospel of Mark, picking up particularly this morning in verse 14. Mark chapter 6, starting at verse 14. Just remind you a bit about the context in which we find ourselves, you remember at the beginning of chapter 6 we had seen Jesus being rejected by the hard-hearted people of the city of Nazareth. That is, if you remember, His hometown. And then we saw in the next section of this chapter, Jesus sending out His twelve apostles to preach the message of the kingdom of God, to call men and women, boys and girls, to repentance, to cast out demons and to heal the sick. And now we see, as we turn to verse 14 of chapter 6, that as they have spread the word of God abroad, the word about Christ and His ministry, even the king, so-called, of the nation of Israel has heard of it. Begin reading then at verse 14. King Herod heard of it, for Jesus' name had become known. Some said, John the Baptist has been raised from the dead. That is why these miraculous powers are at work in him. But others said, he is Elijah. And others said, he is a prophet like one of the prophets of old. But when Herod heard of it, he said, John, whom I beheaded, has been raised. And he kept him safe. When he heard him, he was greatly perplexed. And yet, he heard him gladly. But an opportunity came when Herod on his birthday gave a banquet for his nobles and military commanders and the leading men of Galilee. For when Herodotus' daughter came in and danced, she pleased Herod and his guests. And the king said to the girl, Ask me for whatever you wish, and I will give it to you. And he vowed to her, Whatever you ask me, I will give you up to half of my kingdom. And she went out and said to her mother, For what should I ask? And she said, The head of John the Baptist. And she came in and immediately with haste to the king and and asked, Saying, I want you to give me at once the head of John the Baptist on a platter. And the king was exceedingly sorry. But because of his oaths and his guests, he did not want to break his word to her. And immediately the king sent an executioner with orders to bring John's head. And he went and beheaded him in the prison. And he brought his head on a platter and gave it to the girl." And the girl gave it to her mother. When his disciples heard of it, they came and took his body and laid it in a tomb. This is the word of our God. You may be seated. Let us pray. Father, we again come to you pleading with You, O Lord, that You would teach us now by Your Word. Father, we pray that You would sanctify us in the truth. You know, we acknowledge that Your Word is truth. We ask that You would show us, O Lord, as we consider this portion of the Gospel of Mark, the grace and the glory of Christ Jesus, even as we see this wicked King, who is in every way the antithesis, the antithesis of our Savior. We pray all of these things in the name of our Savior, the Lord Jesus. Amen. Well, no doubt, those of you who have been with us as we have been considering the gospel of Mark for some time now, have heard me say, perhaps even ad nauseum, that one of the desires that Mark has as he writes the Gospel of Mark, one of his goals is to impress upon us the important principle, the important teaching that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. And as we sought to unpack that, I have sought to stress that as Mark is communicating that Jesus is the Son of God, what he is communicating is not merely that He is the Messiah in some vague sense, but He is actually seeking to convince us that Christ is the King of glory. And by that, I mean this, that Jesus Christ is the one of whom we sung in Psalm 2, earlier even the day. The one who is seated upon Zion, God's holy hill. The one who is given The privilege of being seated there, acknowledged as the Son of God from on high, and has been promised an inheritance, the inheritance of the nations. He is the King of God's kingdom, the rightful heir to the throne of David, his father. That's one of the primary purposes of Mark's Gospel. And we see it demonstrated in a number of ways. One way that Mark over and over again stresses to us the royal identity of Jesus is by impressing upon us the incredible authority of Jesus. You notice that. Everywhere you go in the first portion of the Gospel of Mark, you hear about Jesus' authority. His authority to forgive sins. His authority over men but particularly, most majestically perhaps, even His authority over creation. We can think for just a moment about how He even speaks to the wind and the waves and they cease. They obey Him. We can think of the way that He comes and He casts out demons and they obey Him. He has immense authority, which is His by virtue of His kingly identity. Christ, is the king. He's the king of glory. But this morning, as we come to Mark chapter 6, verses 14 and following, we encounter another so-called king. You notice that. We encounter one who, from the perspective of the world, sits enthroned as the king of Israel. And yet, ironically, proves himself throughout this passage to be anything but a king of glory. As we come to this passage, what we actually see as we consider what it tells us about the nature of this man Herod is that in all honesty, what Herod truly is, is not a king over the nation of Israel, patterned after the godly kings of the Old Testament, we think most predominantly of King David, but instead he is a king who is patterned after the wicked pretenders to the throne of Israel. We could think most prominently of Ahab. And we'll note that as the text unfolds, what we learn about this man is that far from being a king of glory, we might want to call him, as I've titled this sermon, a king of shame. He is a man who in every way demonstrates himself to be unworthy of the title. And as we consider that for just a moment, we are meant, I think, to see two important things. We're first meant to see the glory of Christ in comparison with this false imposter, this pretender to his throne. But also, we are meant to see the desperate condition of the covenant people of God at the time of Christ's life and ministry. We'll catch a hint of this later in the next chapter. As you'll recall, throughout the Old Testament, it is not unusual at all to hear the kings of Israel referred to as what? As shepherds. And what will we hear Jesus say in the very next verses of this chapter? As the people of Israel flock to Him and as He feeds them, Miraculously, he says that he has compassion on them. Why? Because they are like sheep without a shepherd. And here, as we get this examination of the life and the character of Herod, we understand why. Herod, I want to argue for you this morning, is a man marked with several unendearing qualities. First, we'll see right off the bat that he is a king, yes, In name only, but he is a king who is marked by melancholy. We note right off the bat that this is a man with a guilty conscience. We'll see that in verses 14 and 16. And really, we'll see the fruit of his guilt here in verses 14 and 16, but we'll see the root of his guilt in verses 17 through 20. He is a king of melancholy. He's one who's weighed down, depressed, discouraged, and indeed, we might even say, haunted by the sins which he has committed against the prophet of God." But then next, he's not only a king of melancholy, he's a king who is being manipulated. You notice that. Ironically, this is not a king who exercises authority, not even in his own house. Instead, who is calling the shots in this passage? Not Herod, but his manipulative wife. It's the height of irony, really. He's a manipulated king. but. He's not only a manipulated king, this manipulation leads him to become, last of all in verses 26 to the end of the passage, a murderous king who turns in a great act of treachery and wickedness and brings an end to the life of the true prophet of God who came to announce the coming of the Messiah. Let us then begin to consider this text and and see, really, this sad portrait of a king of shame. Begin to look at the text with me, if you will, at verse 14. The text tells us here that King Herod heard of it, for Jesus' name had become known. I've already mentioned that this connects back to the text directly before it remember that Jesus' disciples have gone out into the nation of Israel and they have gone out proclaiming repentance and no doubt that's shorthand for the whole message of Jesus about the coming of the kingdom of God and that they have gone out casting out demons and healing the sick they have made such a splash it appears that even the highest echelons of Israelite society are now aware through the proclamation of the apostles of Jesus of Jesus and his miraculous work and his ministry. The king has heard of it. And it's an interesting text here in verses 14 through 16 because we get a glimpse of some of the ideas that people around Israel had about who Jesus was. You know that they're asking that question. The question that we've said a couple of times is the question that really the whole Gospel of Mark asks, but really we could extend that. All the Gospels ask in some way or another. They're asking the question, Who is Jesus? and they've come up with three answers right off the bat we know all three of them are wrong but they have three ideas the first possibility some think is that he is John the Baptist who has been raised from the dead and that's why the miraculous powers that he's working are at work in him. Now, this is an interesting idea. One of the interesting things about this idea is that it, it seems to suggest that the nation of Israel, even at this time, had some idea of resurrection. We know that from other places. But resurrection which in, entails empowerment, which is an interesting thing to note here. They, they, they have this idea that maybe the reason why John has come back from the dead... And come back with, you know, maybe what they might want to call miraculous superpowers is the fact that in his resurrection he has somehow achieved the ability to work these great miracles. It's an interesting thing to note because we'll see that there is actually some truth to that. Resurrection does bring an elevation, if you will, in our state. But we'll leave that one alone for just a moment. Nevertheless, they're wrong about that, but we'll revisit that as we see Herod's Appropriation of that particular option. But, but they also, it appears, thought possibly he is Elijah. Uh, you know, perhaps this is the one who is coming to announce the imminent coming of the Lord in the midst of his people. Of course, we could think about this for a second. That's a little ironic because who is John the Baptist? Well, he is Elijah. The next option could be said to fit John very well as well. Some said that he is a prophet like the prophets of old. Of course, we know that John the Baptist is portrayed in exactly that light as a prophet of old. He is the last and he is the greatest of the old covenant prophets that God has sent to his people. All three of these things, or all three of these opinions, are wrong about Jesus, but all of them in some way connect back to the true identity of John. But you note here in verse 16 that of these three options, Herod adopts the first. But when Herod heard of it, he said, John whom I beheaded has been raised. Now, I want us to think about that for just a moment here. Why is it that, John is conv- or rather that Herod is convinced that Jesus is John the Baptist raised from the dead. Well, he's convinced of that, as we see very clearly here from verse 16, because he is haunted by the memory of what he has done to John the Baptist. Commentators often will speak about verse 16 as exposing the guilty conscience of Herod. He sees and hears about the ministry of Jesus and his immediate thought is that righteous man, that prophet of God who I have executed unrighteously. We'll see later in the passage he certainly did not want to do it. He was exceedingly sorry whenever he was forced into a situation where he was made, really, to murder this prophet. And he is, even now, we see in verse 16, haunted by that memory, weighed down by that guilt, drugged down into a melancholy state because of the reality that he knows very well that he has sinned grievously against the Lord by murdering John the Baptist. This is the confession... The opinion, you might say, of a man who is feeling the weight of his guilt. He's convinced that what he sees in Jesus is John in resurrected glory, if you will. His guilt is here leading him to make this conclusion. We see in some ways here in verse 16 the fruit of the guilt. But then Mark turns at verse 17 and he begins to tell us about the root of this guilt. He, he says here instructively for us, For it was Herod who had sent and seized John and bound him in prison, listen to this, for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, because he had married her. Verse 18, for John had been saying to Herod, it is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. And verse 19, Herodias had a grudge against him and wanted to put him to death, but she could not. Now just think about what we've read here for a moment. Herod knows, as he reflects in verse 16, of the many injustices which he has committed With regards to John the Baptist, he thinks immediately about how he sent and seized John, about how he bound him and put him in prison for the sake of Herodias. Who was Herodias? His brother Philip's wife. And why did he do this for the sake of Herodias? Well, he did this for the sake of Herodias because because he had married her and because John, as we're going to see in just a moment, had been preaching against this unlawful marriage. Herodias has got a grudge against John because he is calling out her and Herod's sin. And it's for that reason that Herod imprisons John. Now, I want you to think about the portrait that Mark is painting for us of Herod here. Just think for a moment about the fact that he possesses Philip, his brother's wife. That tells us a lot about Herod right off the bat, doesn't it? It tells us that this is a man who is, yes, wicked, and he's sinful, all of those things, but more, maybe particularly, it tells us that he is a man who is enslaved to his lust. You see, one of the things I want us to pay attention to here in this passage is the way that that little sin, I call it a little sin because that's how we perceive it, not because that's how God perceives it, that little sin that Herod had in his heart That lust that he harbored leads to this cascading of really deplorable actions. He lusted after his brother Philip's wife. And then what does he do? Well, he has authority. He is so-called the king. So he takes her. His lust causes him to take his brother's wife. Now. Two things are of note here. First, this is adultery, obviously. But second, this is a a more grievous form of adultery than even just adultery on its own right. Because the Old Testament, particularly the book of Deuteronomy, in various places, emphasizes that a man is not to have his brother's wife, even if that brother dies. Now you might be thinking for a second, well what about the obligations of the brother-in-law? Well let me speak to that for just a moment. Whenever a brother-in-law impregnates the wife of his deceased brother, he does so not taking her in marriage necessarily in a formal sense, but he does so to perpetuate that brother's line. What this is Or what Herod has done here is not that. He's not acting in in accordance with God's law to perpetuate the line of his dead brother, but instead he's acting out of his own lust and desire for his brother's wife while his brother is still alive. And he has taken her, he has stolen her, he has coveted, he has lusted, and he has acted. And now he has this woman as his so-called wife. His lust has led to adultery. And that adulterous relationship has now led to the imprisoning of John. Why did it lead to the imprisoning of John? Because John was bold enough to preach the truth to Herod. Now, I want us to think about this for a second because what's happening here in this text, I believe, is a very intentional echo of an episode which we've encountered in the Old Testament. If you think for a moment about the characters at play here, I think this will begin to make sense. Here we have a wicked king of Israel. I've already called him a pretender to the throne in many ways. It's interesting to note about Herod that not even the Roman authorities liked to grant him the title king. Matter of fact, it's because he kept desiring to be granted that title that eventually he would be sent into exile by Emperor Caligula. This is a wicked man. He's a pretender to the throne, but he is nonetheless got this title, King of Israel. He's a wicked king, but there's also a wicked wife. A wicked wife who is manipulative. And through her manipulation is scheming against the prophet of God. A prophet of God, mind you, who has been in the book of Mark already identified directly with the prophet Elijah. Now, I hope now you're beginning to see some things come into focus. What is happening here in some ways is a replay of the story of Ahab, of Jezebel, and of Elijah. And we'll see how this works itself out. We have here John coming just as Elijah came to Ahab whenever he sinned against Naboth and decrying his actions to him. And then we see that the wickedness he has undertaken was undertaken at the behest of his evil wife, who then seeks the prophet's life at various points in his ministry because she desires to quiet his opposition to their mutual sinful activities in the kingdom of Israel. And that's what's happening here to this Second, Elijah figure. And this situation, the situation which Herod is in because of his sin leads him further and further into unrighteousness as we see. But it's interesting to pick up here at verse 20. You note in verse 20 we learn something about Herod. Herod doesn't have exactly the same view of John the Baptist as Herodotus' so-called wife has. He feared John, verse 20 tells us. And that's why he desired not to put him to death. He feared John knowing that he was a righteous and a holy man. And that's why he kept him safe. Now, just think about that for a second. That's an amazing statement. Herod understands very well that this new Elijah, John the Baptist, is truly a prophet of God. He understands that he's a holy, he's a righteous man, and he fears him because of this. He knows that when he preaches, he preaches with the authority of the God of Israel. And therefore, he he is very trepidatious to do anything to harm him. And indeed, we get the picture that here he keeps him in prison. Yes, because Herodias wants to keep him in prison, but perhaps he also keeps him in prison to keep him safe from the plotting of Herodias. He has a certain fondness for John the Baptist. Even more perplexing is what we read as the text goes on. When he heard him, the text tells us, he was greatly perplexed. He heard his message. He didn't know what to make of it. He understood it was a message from God, but he wasn't sure how it should be received. He, he didn't know exactly what it meant. He was perplexed by it, but he also heard him, that is John, gladly. He heard him gladly. That's remarkable. That's remarkable. That's remarkable. This is a man who is in this situation that he's in because of his sin, because of his wickedness. But this is a man who, in spite of himself, is hearing the proclamation of the prophet and is responding with perplexity, yes, but also with gladness. Now let me say something about this. This is a remarkable display of something we've seen earlier in this passage. Remember, Jesus comes to his hometown. People who knew him. People who should have been the first to receive him. People who had every opportunity from a worldly perspective to to accept his message. And they rejected him. Here we find the message of John that is coming clearly with the power of God, that is being preached clearly, fervently, and authoritatively to Herod, who is perplexed and yet hears him gladly, and yet ultimately, as we're going to see, Herod rejects the message that he heard initially with gladness. Now think about that. It reflects back to the beginning of our chapter. It reflects back to the parable of the sower in chapter 4. Here's a man who exhibits the characteristics of one who hears the message of the gospel and who initially receives it with gladness, and yet the cares of the world come in and snuff it out. But nonetheless, it also teaches us here not only the kind of soil that we see in the heart of Herod, but also the kind of soil that we see in some people, even in our own day, who hear the word of God. Brethren, It is the case that there are many who will sit under the preaching of the Word of God and who will initially respond with gladness and yet who ultimately will prove themselves to be false professors. If you haven't experienced that already, you will. It is a harsh and it is a sad reality of the world in which we live that people will hear the gospel. They will recognize in the message Something glorious, something wonderful, something to be rejoiced in even. And yet they will ultimately fall to the wayside. That's what happens here with Herod. He ends up rejecting the message of John. That's a sobering reality. And yet it's one that we, as the people of God, have to be aware of, because if we don't understand that this is the case, we will often find ourselves discouraged when we see it happening. Not that it's not discouraging, even when you understand it, biblically speaking. But nevertheless, it's important for us to understand that we have examples of these kinds of things taking place, even in the Word of God. And we see what kind of a hearer of the gospel Herod is. But let's continue then, as we move past verse 20 into verse 21 and following, to see the continuing and growing escalation of Herod's sinfulness. As it develops here, as he's manipulated by his wife Herodotus. Look at verse 21. Verse 21 tells us, But an opportunity came. Now, here's the question. Whose opportunity has come? Some take this to be the opportunity of Herod. I I don't. This is the opportunity, I believe, of Herodias. She has been looking. She's been plotting. Just like Jezebel of old, she has been on the watch for an opportunity to destroy John the Baptist. And here she has found an opportunity. The opportunity came when Herod on his birthday gave a banquet for his nobles and military commanders and the leading men of Galilee. You note what's taking place here. It's Herod's birthday and because it's his birthday he's called together all the great men of Galilee. And they've come here, his nobles and his military commanders and he's, he's throwing a great banquet for them. Now, ironically, again, note what's coming right after this section of the Gospel of Mark. We're about to see Jesus, in a sense, throw a banquet. He's going to feed 5,000 in a miraculous manner, but here we see another banquet, another meal, another feeding taking place. This, of course, is the banquet of the king of shame, not of glory. He's thrown a birthday banquet for himself. Verse 22, For when Herodias' daughter came in and danced, she pleased Herod and his guest. And the king said to the girl, Ask of me, or rather, ask me for whatever you wish, and I will give it to you. Now, the text doesn't expressly state this, but it doesn't take much reading between the lines to understand what's taking place here. The opportunity has come, the banquet is set, and then all of a sudden here comes Herodias' daughter, and she comes in dancing in such a manner that she pleased Herod and his guests. This is the plot unfolding before our eyes. Now think about this for just a moment as we think about the wickedness of this lady Herodotus. The dancing that is taking place here, I hate to break it to you, is not English country dancing. This is not a respectable form of dancing. What is taking place here is that Herodotus, in her manipulative and conniving manner, has sent out her own daughter to dance in a sexually suggestive manner for the king and for his nobles. Think about the character of this woman that's being exposed here. This is a wicked woman. So wicked that she's even willing to exploit her own daughter, who according to most commentators is somewhere in her teens right now for the sake of taking advantage of her husband, so-called. Think about the character of this woman. Think about the manipulative nature of this woman. This is a wicked lady. And yet, you know, she's also cunning, isn't she? Because what does she know? She knows Herod's weak points. How does she know it? Because she's already taken advantage of it. She knows that this is a man who is enslaved to his lusts. If he wasn't enslaved to his lust, he wouldn't be in this situation to begin with. He wouldn't be the possessor of his brother's wife. But she knows. She knows what kind of a man he is. She knows where his weaknesses are. And she sends out her daughter to exploit that weakness. And she does so very effectively. We see that here. Because as soon as she gets done dancing, he makes this incredibly foolish vow. Verse 23 tells us, And he vowed to her, Whatever you ask me, I will give it to you. Up to half of my kingdom. It's an interesting little allusion there to the story of Esther, if you might recall. Many of the aspects of this story allude to that one. But just note that there. Up to half of my kingdom I will give you. But this is how we begin to see. This is the plot, not of Herodias' daughter, but of Herodias herself. What does her daughter do? Verse 24, she went out and she said to her mother, For what should I ask? And she said, she should ask for the heads of John the Baptist. Again, we see here that this young girl is merely the tool who is being exploited by her wicked mother. She's accomplished her goal, she's gotten him to make this agreement with her, and now she leaves, and she leaves so that she can get further instructions. Okay, I've got him right where we want him, now what do we want him to do? It's at that point that we see the murderous nature of this plot exposed. But before we go further down that route, I just want us to stop again and to reflect on the nature of sin as it's displayed for us here in the life of Herod. We've seen how it's developed. His lust has given way to his adultery, and now his lust is showed back up again, and is allowing him to be manipulated by this scheming woman, Herodias, and her scheming daughter. The apple, it doesn't seem, has fallen very far from the tree, and yet they're working together To manipulate Herod. There's several things we should say about this. First is that Herod is indeed enslaved to his sin. Now just think about that for a moment. This man is a man who claims the title king. He's supposed to be the sovereign of the kingdom. And every aspect of this story shows us that far from being a man who is in control of the kingdom, he's not even in control of himself. He's not even in control of his own households. He is far from a king in the way he acts. He's rather more closely aligned to a slave, to a servant. Indeed, he is a king of shame and he is a servant of his own sin. He's dominated, he's enslaved, he's ensnared to it and it compels him to sin more and more as he seeks to live in this wicked arrangement that he has constructed for himself as he gratifies his own flesh. I just want to say to you, brothers and sisters, pay attention to the way sin escalates in this passage. Because that's the way it escalates in your life and in my life as well. An unmortified desire turns into a sinful action. And that sinful action soon blossoms into even greater sinful actions. And that's what's taking place here in the life of Herod. And think about this for a moment. At the first, Herod's lust seemed like a pleasant thing. But by the time we get to the request that we're going to see here in verse 26, we're going to realize that the facade is no more and that the pleasant exterior of sin has given way to the true reality of sin. And now Herod understands that this is not a pleasant thing, but that he has the whole time been drinking, as it were, spiritual poison for his soul. And when that realization comes upon him, it results in what we see there in verse 26 that he is exceedingly sorry. But it's too late, at least in his mind. Beware of the pleasant, appealing exterior of sin. It may seem like a good idea for a moment, but once it has been indulged, it quickly devolves into pain and misery. Now, even as I say that, I understand that almost everyone in this room who has been a Christian for any amount of time probably understands, even those who maybe haven't been a Christian, understand that this is how sin works. It offers brief enjoyment, but it gives way to lasting misery. So let me say this, kill it before it gets an opportunity. Mortify the flesh before it can mortify you. To paraphrase the words of John Owen. He's a manipulated king. Manipulated by his flesh. Manipulated by his wife. Manipulated by his daughter. He's the servant of sin, but this manipulation, this servant who leads him then to become not only a manipulated, not only a melancholy king, but a murderous king. Now look at what we see here as we turn in earnest to verse 26. Now, The king was exceedingly sorry. He was exceedingly sorry. Emphasis there. He's cut to the very heart. He understands immediately that he has made a tremendous mistake. But, instead of what he should have done, and by the way, this is what you should do when you make an unlawful, ungodly vow. You should break it. We'd be clear about that don't allow someone to hold you to a vow to an oath that is an ungodly, unbiblical vow or oath. He should have broke it, but he didn't. Of all the places he decides to be true to his word, he decides to be true to this foolish, rash vow. But because of his oaths and his guests, he didn't want to break his word to her. And so verse 27 Immediately he sent out an executioner with orders to bring John's head. And he went and beheaded him in prison. And he brought his head on a platter and gave it to the girl. And the girl gave it to her mother. It's interesting to me at least to note that when... Herodias' daughter comes to the king. He, she, she, she adds a macabre aspect, even, into the already horrific request. She doesn't just ask for the head of John, but she asks for the head of John on a platter. This is a disturbing thing to think about, but it's interesting to note that here we are at a feast. Here we are at a banquet. And what's being served up on a platter? The severed heads of the prophet of God. This is a king of shame. I had a friend who preached this passage. He used the title, A Banquet of Blood. He's a better preacher than I am. couldn't come up with that. But it's appropriate here. You can even imagine the atmosphere changing. You can imagine these men have been called up in their sin and their revelry. They've been drinking, probably. They've been feasting. They've been enjoying the sensual dance by this woman. She comes in with this request, the mood of the room must have changed immediately with the mood of the king. And now we were rejoicing just a few moments ago. We were having a great time, and we don't know how long it took, but apparently in the same feast, Instead of enjoying the food, now we have the head of the prophet of God sitting in the midst of this banquet. It's a horrific picture of the depths to which Herod has fallen. And again, it shows to us that flowering spread of sin the life of this wicked king. His disciples, it says at verse 29, heard of it, they came and they took his body and they lay it in a tomb. I wonder what his disciples thought they did that. One of the remarkable things about the ministry of John the Baptist is that he is a forerunner of the Lord Jesus Christ, meaning, first and foremost, that he preaches that one who is coming after him is greater than he. He points to the reality that directly upon his heels is coming the Messiah, the King of God's kingdom. Indeed, directly upon his heels comes the presence of Yahweh with his people. God himself follows John. That's the message he preaches you see it clearly in the Gospel of John, for instance. But you see, John was not merely a forerunner of Jesus in the sense that he preached the message that Jesus was coming. But he was also a forerunner of Jesus in the sense that he embodied in his own life, ministry, and cruel death at the hands of this pretender to the throne of Israel the reception that Jesus himself would receive. We see here, in the rejection of John, what is coming for Christ. The forerunner sets the pattern. The message of Elijah who came to preach has been rejected, and the message of Christ, in a very real sense, will be rejected by these wicked leaders of the nation of Israel. Again, therefore, it's easy for us to confess along with Jesus in the next passage, the nation of Israel at this time was like a flock of sheep who had no shepherd. This is the man who claimed to be their king. A man who is consumed by his guilt, is drugged down into a melancholy state who is haunted by the memory of the evil he has committed against the true prophet of God. A man who far from exercising righteous authority in the kingdom is manipulated at every turn by his own flesh and by his wicked wife. And a man who ultimately shows himself to be a great opposer of the kingdom of God by killing the prophet who announces its coming. This is a king of shame. But in a strange way, Herod's failures provide a foil for the glory of the king who is coming. And as we consider this text together and as we meditate upon the sad report that we are given by Mark here of the life and the activity of Herod the king, we we should be meant to reflect upon the grace of God who sends to His people the great shepherds of His sheep. We are meant to reflect upon the reality that Jesus Christ is the King of glory and that He is coming is the coming of a great shepherd. A shepherd, a king, who not only is righteous in his judgments, who is authoritative in his decree, but a shepherd who is willing, in the words of John 10, to even lay down his life for the sake of his sheep. Far from being a murderous king, he is a king who is willing to take to Himself the curse of death for the sake of His people. He is truly the King of glory. As we leave this place, I think it's appropriate for us then this day to meditate upon His glorious and gracious nature. He is a king who is triumphant. He is a king who, far from being manipulated, is authoritative in all that he does. He was, as he lived on this earth, he is, even now, as he sits, ruling and reigning at the right hand of God the Father. And he is a king who has shown himself willing to even face himself murderous intentions of the petty tyrants of this world to save the life of His people. So as we reflect on the King of shame displayed to us here, let us take hold by faith to the King of glory, who even now rules and defends us. Amen. Let us pray. Father, we are thankful even as we consider a passage of Scripture which shows forth to us the insidious nature of sin and the the sad state of Your covenant people. We are thankful, Lord, that You have not left us in such desperate conditions, but that You, O Lord, have given to us a great King, that you have given to us a great shepherd of the sheep who leads his people, who guides them through trouble, who is constantly with them, whose rod and staff brings them comfort, who feeds us by his word. And we pray even this day, O oh Lord, as we meditate upon your word, that you would use this word to conform us into the image of our King and to make us more useful servants and citizens in His kingdom. These things we pray in His glorious and righteous name. Amen.